Live from Toaster, this is John Gibbs with The Morning Break. You are listening live. Welcome to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Dr. Sharon Fraser Burgess, Professor of Social Foundations of Education and Multicultural Education at Ball State University, Indiana in the USA. Today we discuss race in the USA and making sense of it in the classroom. A fascinating discussion with many parallels and lessons for the UK. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. Welcome back to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. If you've been following this podcast over the last few weeks, you'll know that after more than 30 years of teaching, and now retired, I'm reflecting on what exactly it was I did all those years. One of the themes that's developed with some of my past guests has been whether schools have a responsibility for creating a sense of national identity A few weeks ago, Professor Jan Yamat of UCL University and I discussed exactly that issue and how schools can encourage or discourage, for that matter, participation in the world of politics, constructing social identity, British values. And recently, a guest of mine, Colin Diamond, had carried out an extensive exploration and written a book, the Birmingham book, into the Trojan horse affair in Birmingham a few years ago. Both of these guests were in a way leading up to my guest this week, since they were exploring how societies which are diverse create a unified sense of who they are. This is certainly an issue for us in the UK, but in the USA, it's one of the hottest issues in education at the moment. I was privileged to have as my guest this week, Dr. Sharon, Fraser Burgess from Ball State University in Indiana, who has written numerous books, lectures, teaches students, teaches teachers, and is an expert on ethics in education. Together we discussed critical race theory and why the issue of race in America is so contentious and how American schools are trying to resolve the problem of national identity, integration, and being honest about the past. our conversation with critical race theory. It's the hottest issue at the moment. And Donald Trump described it as un-American. Trump is a populist and he's tapping into something. What is it that makes Americans so uncomfortable? And indeed, what is critical race theory? Right. He certainly has tapped into a deep disaffection in 
his followers who for the most part are predominantly white, they are socioeconomically diverse in that they are within the full spectrum of their of sort of economic status. However, they are for the most part um, Anglo-American and he's tapped into the, the political disaffection uh, in terms of having our social discourse being contingent on recognizing the extent to which there's a broader culpability for um, for white Americans historically uh, in the the social injustice that injustices that have unfolded. But a great context for this debate is comparing the 1619 project, uh, Nicole Hannah Joseph's amazing work with the. Um, with the New York Times, with our standard American history. And if we compare the narrative that the respective narratives of these projects, we can somewhat understand what's at stake for the white dominant uh, population. Traditionally, American history has taught this narrative of American exceptionalism and a manifest destiny that was animated by a Judeo-Christian sense of uh, religious freedom and the inherent value of uh, human beings. And so the notion that America is this iconic uh, exemplar of the fulfillment of this destiny has been sort of the, you know, the substance of the education that uh, and even the social discourse, the social intercourse, if you will, that Donald, Donald Trump and his generation have um, imbibed, have accepted and believed. And that is at odds with the premise of the 1619 Project, which is to say, while there may be a case for saying that there is this overarching narrative of uh, the fulfillment of this destiny of being the city on the hill, there is also a parallel program that is very much tied to the capitalistic orientation of the coming into being of this country's raison d'etre, and that those projects were represented in all of the 13 colonies. And so there is a competing narrative of this country uh, that is really representative in the critical race politics. It's interesting because I, I was looking at a book the other day in this country, and it was it's called Empire Land. In a way, it takes a very, very critical view of the British Empire. And not unsurprisingly, it looks at things like the abolition of slavery, slave, sorry, the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. Then, then slavery itself isn't abolished in the British Empire until 1833. And, that, and, the, and the enormous legacy of advantage that slavery is, one of the most profitable trades in the world gave to the British. And they said, look, basically it's asking the British people, look around you and in everything you see in our colleges, in our institutions, you can see benefits that accrued from slavery. And I think you, you could, it's not an easy thing to learn, but if you went into a British school and taught that, it wouldn't be particularly controversial to the parents. And I think you've, you've explained some of the reasons why. So the Americans have the view that America is on a course you described Manifest Destiny, a course of, of special, you know, it is the, the country to which others will look. And Americans themselves look the same way at their country. 
So how do you, if you're a teacher, go into a school and teach teach the history of America? Right. I do think that the philosophical, ethical framework within which social studies, as we call it, uh, or civics education should be taught is pre-existing in the notion of United States as a democratic republic. And within our history, there's continued to be this ongoing grappling with these questions of identity, a national identity, and what and pluralism, right? The notion of assimilation in order to advance the broader goals of the nation state versus pluralism, which means that all lives flourish, right? And so this assimilationist versus uh, pluralist conception is actually written into our history that, I mean, it would be very accurate for our history teachers and those teaching civic education to allow, through primary sources, these kinds of conversations historically to be the basis of conversation. You know, there's this... um, there's a debate between, for example, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin about how do you cultivate Republican virtues in the early years of the the the, the, the establishment of a republic. And Benjamin Franklin was want to say or known to say, I, I, we have a republic if we can keep it. And so he was very cognizant in his own lifetime of the threats to the the social cohesion that were of a moral kind. And Benjamin Franklin was deeply uh, sort of enmeshed in the economy of slavery. He he advertised for slaves he, uh, in his early life, but towards the end of his life, he joined the abolitionist cause. So even the arc of Benjamin Franklin's life who is, again, an iconic figure in, in, in the history of the United States, a brilliant inventor, thinker, uh, a man about town, a Renaissance man, if you will. Uh, he made that full journey from uh, being uh, a supporter of the slave trade to compelling the Philadelphia Congress to, to uh, join in the cause of eradicating this institution that he thought was a fundamental threat to uh, the the tenets of our constitution. So within these documents and within our history, it is more accurate to revisit these conversations and all of their nuances as a model for our students for how democracy places this moral burden on us to think about what uh, citizenship means in a pluralistic society uh, or in in a multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic society. Yes, and you mentioned two ways of thinking, in a sense, about race. The, what we used to be called the melting pot idea and the kind of multiculturalist idea, the pluralist idea. Both of them present different sorts of problems for, for society. One might be seen as exclusionary, exclusionary, drawing boundaries around people. And others might be seen, the other melting pot idea might be seen as simply imperialistic, which often was, you know, the the melting pot was fine as long as you melted down to be a certain type of person. Is there a different way of framing that discussion today about how you fit into American society? That's a great question. Uh, One of the 
sort of representatives of this conversation is um, Horace Callan, who went to Harvard in the 1920s, and he's known for producing uh, some of the literature on pluralism. And he was conceiving of pluralism at a time when you know, immigration was at its zenith, if you will, in the United States. And he thought that it would enrich our social contract if we we allowed immigrants from Northern and Southern Europe to actually embrace their ethnic uh, to, you know, sort of traditions, history, culture, and, and bring it with them into citizenship. But there was a nativist strain that uh, really made us access into this homogeneity or uh, homo- sorry, homo- homogeneous sense of citizenship a precondition of um, becoming part of America. You know, it, 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 I would be remiss if I did not sort of identify the racial hierarchy as really salient to this calculation. Uh, whether the notion of assimilation was intended to mean assimilation into a white sort of Anglo-Saxon Protestant sense of what it m- means to be American, this is in a, in a sense what's happened. And so books like, you know, How the Irish Became White kind of detail the process of assimilation as equating into adopting a white sort of you know, superior, a sense of white supremacy uh, being the default American culture. And so currently we are still grappling with what being American means if it is not to be simply a sort of adoption of you know, this explicit or an implicit tenets of whiteness. So in that sense, Sharon, what you're saying is that any attempt to teach the history of race in the United States or in race in any country is going to be stepping on the toes of people's current sense of identity and exploring what we are right now, which is why it's so, well, difficult. Actually, if one is inclined to be an optimist, one can see the current kerfuffle um, as this attempt to sort of grapple with what does it mean to be American if it's this third space. It is not uh, an initiation into whiteness and, you know, which has its own ethnic, you know, ethnic dimensions, if one wants to concede that, but certainly should not be um, continuous with dominance and supporting a racial hierarchy uh, where whites are at the top and uh, non-whites are perpetually stuck in the bottom in a kind of caste-like uh, relation to each other. So if, if, I, if I really want to be realistic, I have to say as a nation, we have not yet achieved this broad-based understanding uh, and we neither do we have the, the, the habitus to, to engage in the conversation without v- various parties feeling aggrieved and, and, and not fully able to deal with the sense of loss that is generated from you know, their identity being the default sense of what is what it means to be American. And so it is the ongoing project. And, and, and our book, Making Sense of Race, was an attempt to put out there some of the tools 
that teachers might want to implement in order to create the best possible critical, rational, ethical, and pedagogical environment for their students to acquire the skills, because I think that is really the important uh, sort of qualities here that this conversation about race wants to impart. Uh, It's not a particular belief, set of beliefs, but rather the critical analytical uh, skills to think systematically, richly, and richly about the meaning of our our social contract and and you know as, as a democracy, what would it take to perfect the union? So it, it, it's really a sense of these critical thinking skills that are very explicit about the frame of reference, the historical frame of reference, if you will, that we must bring to our conversation in order to think about our civic identity uh, as a nation and as citizens. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs, and my guest this week, Dr. Sharon Fraser Burgess, who is the Professor of Social Foundations of Education and Multicultural Education at Ball State University in Indiana in the USA. We are discussing how to make sense of race in education, both in the United States and in the UK. seems to me the idea of schools being places of critical evaluation and reconsideration and analysis just goes with education, but also what America is. And, you know, the, the cliche of an, an experiment that still has yet to resolve itself. It's a 200-year-old experiment in human organisation and society. And that it's it, being reflective and being critical and, being, and, and trying to understand that would seem to be very American. Some years ago, I went to New York and we went to the Ellis Island and and they, I remember them pointing out how people were often given, if they had very German sounding names or very Eastern European sounding names, they would say, well, well, you might as well, while you're here, change your name. And I thought, well, this is very, very strange and very historically interesting. And yet in the 1990s, when I talked briefly in, in Oregon, a chap said, oh, yes, he said, I've recently married. My wife was from for the Philippines. And as we did our... Um, uh, citizenship, swearing the oath and so on, the judge said, would you like to be called Nancy to my wife? <laughs> and, he said, oh. and she immediately said, oh, yes, thank you very much. That's good because I'm American now, so I'll be Nancy from now on. Exactly. And that's actually uh, an anecdote that supports critical race theory's basic tenet that Americanization has, for the individual, and at the systemic at the level of systems has often equated to a, a colonialization of immigrants, both, both forced and voluntary. And that while it is an open question, the extent to which one has to be initiated into the broader culture of any country to which one you know, takes the oath of citizenship it ought not to be one that asks you to accept ways of thinking that 
that are premised on your inferiority based on your nation, your you know the nation of birth, your race, your language, and and, and these and other sort of locations of um, identity. And so this is the this is what critical race theory is is wanting to underscore in an academic te- you know context with a with a sort of highly theoretical sort of explanation. Uh, and in schools, only very in a in a very simplistic way as a premise, as a part of our history, to say this ought not to be the case. We ought to think differently about what unifies us. We ought to do that work intellectually. Uh, and insofar as it's tied to inequity um, or systems, you know, systemic uh, marginalization of any group of people on the basis of their difference, we ought to to um, we ought to be advocates for uh, removing those inequities. All societies, in a sense, have to face the problem they are creating a community, and the community has to have some sort of shared values shared attitudes that would be acceptable to all. But it's when they, when they become oppressive or when they are used, when they're seen as normal, they're normalised and yet are oppressive. For instance, in the 1980s, there was a politician in this country, his name was Norman Tebbett, and he referred to something which later became known as the Tebbett Test, which was you were British if you supported the English cricket team. And you weren't British if you didn't. So if you came to this country and you didn't then immediately transfer your allegiance to all its national football teams and cricket teams and so on, then you couldn't then be properly British. It's asking for a level of loyalty that was also asking you to deny your own heritage at the same time. Uh, One hopes that there's much more to one's patriotism, uh, that the hard questions of loyalty to one's um, station, uh, nation of citizenship is thoughtful and careful and you know goes all the way down to being willing to fight for one's nation should that be requested. But clearly allegiances it, it certainly makes sense, right? We, we are a world of global, you know, of international boundaries or boundaries that are established on the basis of national identity. And so unless that global order is we're somehow going to do away with in some you know in the future, and it may be the case, that global order is for the for the you know for the for the near future, the structure with which we're working to order our allegiances. And so one would think that, yeah, being a citizen has an ob- obligation in, in, in these, not the least of which, if I could say, supporting your national teams, but also making the distinction between internal disagreements that are inward facing and external ones that are facing um, the global uh, context. Hmm. One of the things that strikes me about when I've traveled to the United States or, or my wife's American and is a different attitude to patriotism. It, it does mean different things in the two countries, uh, or at least it manifests itself very differently in, in our two countries. Americans are more likely to have flags outside their houses. Americans are more likely to sing the national anthem. There's an oath of allegiance in American schools and so on, which you wouldn't find here. And it, it strikes me that, if patriotism is something which asks you to 
love your country right or wrong, then any, any anyone who's lived past in this in the era after the Second World War couldn't support that. You know, there, there must be a sense in which I, I I'm in a sort of social contract with my country. I, I I'm very privileged to be here. I I like many of its aspects, but it's not an it's not an absolute loyalty or uh, an unquestioning loyalty. This is a complicated question, and perhaps because I I I teach. Um, the, you know the, the works of Plato in my graduate philosophy of education class. I recall Socrates's own conversation about this very topic um, when he was given the I think it was the credo. I think when um, he was offered the opportunity to steal away. Um, as the story would have it, in order to escape the death penalty. And, you know, as the story goes, Socrates really, it, they did not intend to make him a state martyr. He, they simply wanted him to go away <laughs> and um, go into exile. But uh, he made this argument. It's a classic argument, love it or hate it, but it does give us a lot to consider in a kind of principled, um, idealistic way, uh, Socrates said, well, how could I have benefited? How could I be the beneficiary of all that this country has offered me? And at this moment, when it's requiring me to take a stand in what I believe is in the best interest of my country, I'm fighting for what I think is right, you know, as the, as the gadfly of the nation. Uh, if my death is the way to make the statement that I'm calling Athens to its higher purpose, then I must, as a citizen, must be willing to pay that price. And, you know, he perhaps is a model of the, uh, you know, unconditional uh, loyalty to one's nation. But uh, I certainly think that that his experience is instructive. And it suggests that loyalty to one's uh, nation can be a motivation that sparks, you know, sort of civil disobedience in the interest of a higher moral purpose. And one might, you know, be indicted in history for that, or one might be praised in history for that. But I, I do think that there's a moral sort of uh, praiseworthiness uh, when that argument is being made. But as you said, it is not an unconditional good because, of course, we've had, uh, you know, it, it, those who um, breached the Capitol on January 6th made this argument, right, that they believe that Donald Trump was the rightful president and they needed to right a wrong. But I think, you know, there's certain par- parameters that one might say that one should not break the law in order to make this case uh, for the protection of one's country. But reasonable people, in fact, will and do agree. Uh, Disagree as well. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs, and my guest this week, Dr. Sharon Fraser Burgess, who is the Professor of Social Foundations of Education 
and multicultural education at Ball State University in Indiana in the USA. We are discussing how to make sense of race in education, both in the United States and in the UK. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Schools Week reports the government is set to offer overseas teachers who come to England to teach languages or physics a £10,000 relocation premium under a new trial. The premium would be open to both trainee and established teachers working outside of the UK and would be paid at the end of their first term. Under the plan, there would be no need for the money to be paid back. The Department for Education said the trial could support up to 400 people to relocate, with the full cost adding up to £4 million. According to recent data, secondary school teacher recruitment targets have been missed for all but one of the past 10 years and last year they fell short by 40%. The pilot for this new programme will run in the next academic year. In strike action news, industrial action has been suspended by NEU members in Wales. The action is halted whilst a new pay offer is considered. In a statement reported on a range of media platforms, NEU leaders in Wales said that following discussions with the Welsh Government, a new revised and fully funded pay offer will be put to members. The planned strike for the 15th and 16th of March will now not take place, although these dates remain for action in England and will continue to go ahead as planned. The revised offer for those teaching in Wales is said to be worth a total of 11.8%. The offer will be voted on by members of the NEU in Wales via electronic ballot. NEU leaders Dr Mary Bowstead and Kevin Courtney thanked the Welsh Government for the constructive approach to finding a resolution and contrasted it with the behaviour of Gillian Keegan, England's Secretary of State for Education, who they said was preventing talks in England by refusing talking to ACAS. Teachers in Scotland, who are members of the EIS union, have also voted to accept their latest pay offer. This will see a 7% rise backdated to April 2022, a further 5% next month and another 2% in January. NESUWT members in Scotland have yet to vote on the offer. Student loans are back in the spotlight after changes to the system. Channel 4 reports that student loan repayments will rise for those in the next cohort of students in England, as the repayment threshold is to be dropped. The government has said this makes the loan system fairer for taxpayers and students, whilst education experts say it will make low to middle income graduates worse off. Current students will only make 9% repayments when they earn over £27,295 a year, or £2,274 a month, or £524 a week in the UK. However, if you're starting an undergrad course or qualify for an advanced learner loan, 
on or after August the 1st, 2023, those students will pay 9% of their income over the lower threshold of £25,000 a year, 2083 a month or 480 per week. Students on the new plan won't be expected to make payments until April 2026, but the length of repayment is also changing. Current students pay until the debt is cleared or for 30 years, but new students will pay until the debt is cleared or for 40 years. Full details of the changes plus comments on the impact many believe it will have can be found on Channel 4's website and all data has been subject to the outlet's fact check system. Finally, a writer who wrote a book on the topic of online misogyny has given an interview to The Guardian. Laura Bates wrote Men Who Hate Women, The Extremism No One Is Talking About, and it was published in 2020. In the interview, she raises concerns about the widening gap between generations who have never known a world without the internet and those older generations struggling to understand and keep up. She talks in particular of the impact this is having on what she describes as the millions of girls who are realising the impossibility of escaping from harassment, revenge porn, deep fakes and the difficulties in navigating a world online. Bates sees the problem in its broadest form, not just an issue with influencers like Andrew Tate. In fact, she says she wasn't even aware of him until last year. This, she says, is worrying in itself as there is a danger that the well-intentioned coverage will only boost his profile and that if and when his influence wanes, many will think it is a case of problem solved, when actually the problems and attitudes that give rise to people like Tate will continue. Full details of the article can be found on the Guardian website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs and my guest this week, Dr. Sharon Fraser-Burgess, who is the Professor of Social Foundations of Education and Multicultural Education at Ball State University in Indiana in the USA. We are discussing how to make sense of race in education, both in the United States and in the UK. A few years ago, there was a court case in this country. A young black man called Stephen Lawrence was stabbed to death in the streets by a, a gang of white youths. And the police, this was this was good 25, 30 years ago now. No, maybe, maybe only 20 years ago. And he was stabbed to death in the street. The, the police turned up and arrested his black friend on the assumption that young black man stabbed, that must mean that young black men stabbed young black men. And so stories of a white, gang were discounted and they weren't even investigated. When the truth came out, it caused such a scandal that they had a public inquiry and the public inquiry came to a stunning conclusion. It said the police in Britain are institutionally racist. It's ingrained in them. Uh, it's, it's, it's in the culture of the, of the staff room, as it were, in, the, in this, in the culture of the police. Even the black officers themselves are inculcated or in, are, uh, inducted into this, into this level of racism. I think, well, an observation like that isn't unpatriotic. It's just very necessary. Yes. I mean, the state is not always a moral actor. The state and its representatives 
are not always moral actors. Um, and this, uh, this, of course, goes back to a long tradition of distinguishing between the law and, um, and ethics, right? And so we have in, in the United States, of course, most recently, um, in the death of Tyree Nichols, it, it was a tragic example of the fact that at the point of the, the spear, if you will, but the point of interaction, uh, the state in, in a sense, could have any racial identity, could have any ethnic sort of representation, but it is state power. Incidentally, that is consistent with the tradition of how racism has worked in the United States. In fact, it's written into the very foundation of our systems to exercise this state violence on the basis of race and ethnicity. So it is not shocking. In fact, requires a great feat of cognitive dis dissonance to believe that institutionalized racism is not the norm in our society. When you consider that, you know, for three, over three centuries, uh, even the greatest, some of the greatest minds in our country were able to rationalize chattel slavery, uh, to accommodate it in our, in our national uh, policies, uh, and to justify you know, some, you know, policies like the, you know, allowing the Southern planters to count their slaves as three-fifths persons, the three-fifths compromise in order to give them greater representation. There was a consciousness about the dehumanization of one, one group of people that governed these, um, this legislation and sort of equally egregious in, in the treatment of the Native, Native Americans, the systematic vacation of uh, or vacating of our oaths to them, which again is inconsistent with our democratic charter, um, and then culminating in the trail of tears with um, Andrew Jackson's forced removal of the, of, of the members of the Cherokee Nation after their serious attempt to assimilate into American society, the surrendering of their traditions in order to meet with kind of this Anglo-American approval in the in the, their agrarian economy, you know, changing from being hunter hunter gatherers into being agrarian in the southeast part of the United States, in order basically to be left alone. And after decades of attempting this wholesale cultural transformation. They were told that they could not join uh, white society. They could not count as citizens by virtue of their ethnicity. And so we we actually have more sort of grand examples of this tendency in our nation to uh, you know to, to to implement this uh, this this institutionalized racism than the contrary. And so we critical race theory is wanting. At, at the level of, of academia to raise our awareness of these practices so that we can begin to counter them. Uh, and so obviously there's a weird sort of, you know, resistance because so many of our educational elites have been socialized into the very system that we want to change. And so it goes against the psychological grain, right? How How can they how can they counter that way of life that has been that, that that it is the only life they know and so we are really in a dilemma 
of a sort of cognitive crisis uh, in our country that is, is just playing out in the way that you're seeing right now in the populism, uh, in, in the political strife. I, mean, I have no problem, in a sense, looking at hearing that the police are in this country are institutionally racist because it's blatantly obvious, as in America, not to the same degree or egregiousness as America, but young black men get longer sentences than young white men for the same crimes and so on. And they're more likely to be stopped on an in a, in a city street than young white men. It, it's, it's so obviously, it can, it's, it, it, it's in it, obviously it stands before you. I've also got no problem looking at British schools, of which I'm a part, I've taught all those years, 30 years in, in teaching, and saying that they are innately, intrinsically, culturally biased against working class people, that the examination system, the class system, private education, the existence of a royal family, cultural, sorry, class advantage saturates British society. And as you say, it's normalised, it's completely normalised, as if it were just simply the wallpaper in which we, we stand in front of, and yet it's there the disadvantage of working class people. Yeah, indeed. And in, in 2020, there really seemed to be in the United States an opportunity to nationally, you know, from you know, kind of grassroots groundswell, transform the cultural milieu, if you will, um, because of the shared experience of seeing George Floyd being murdered before our very eyes, which in in a sense is very rare in the 21st century that millions of hundreds of millions of people experience in real time or close to real time um, an act of such brutality that you know viscerally sort of you know brought before us the brutality of race, a white police officer and other police officers of various ethnicities are standing around. Um, and one of those police officers has his knee on the neck of this African-American man who could be heard to be crying out for mercy, if you will, or just for someone to care about his suffering. And the visceralness of that experience led to perhaps the greatest international and in some sense international anti-racist movement this country has ever seen. And as these things happen, there's a convergence as well in the literature and the, the books that are being published at the time uh, in Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. So you have not only the the example that we that is difficult to to to, to counter. You have the 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 intellectual uh, co you know sort of content to to discuss how it's possible to you know to to create new basis of uh, new new sort of basis of social intercourse. And so ideally, we should then have been able to move forward as a society, even against the backdrop of Donald's, Donald Trump's assault on these norms of, you know, sort of stand of liberal democracy. Um, and that we actually have had a backlash 
shows how difficult the social progress is on this matter of race. Um, Ibram Kendi's book, which is often not acknowledged, was a sea change in this anti-racist sort of practices in that he acknowledged two things. One, uh, Blacks could be racist and that racism could actually take an anti-white direction. Prior to Kendi writing this in his book, it was sort of you know considered uh, standard to say that blacks could not be racist to each other, that is be anti-black, and that whites could not be the recipients of racism. But he laid out in that book that uh, we need to not think of racist think in terms of racist people. But, but to think in terms of racist ideas. So Kendi's brilliance was detaching racism as a practice from individuals and placing it firmly in the social intercourse and all of the different associated uh, intellectual and social and institutional factors that, that are contributing to its nature. And so he implored us to think in terms of racist ideas, which got him into quite a bit of trouble with the social justice movement that had seen the claims I just stated as kind of axioms. Uh, uh, But instead of embracing uh, Ibram Kendi's really revolutionary uh, peace offering, uh, he was vilified on Fox News as the sort of uh, representative of critical race theory. And uh, they must not have read his book. <laughs> so we, we, we have the tools, we had the resources, yet the, the force of sort of the white supremacy and its ability to drum up white grievance unjustifiably in, in addition to the fact that um, the economic policies of the United States have resulted in the systematic uh, ex, uh, sort of expansion of the, 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 the wealth gap so that a disproportionate and increasing amount of our national wealth is concentrated not only in the top 1%, but in the top 20%. And the rest of us are left to fight over this very small portion of the economic pie. And so people are feeling in their lives that they have so much less to work with and in the tradition of populism are looking for a scapegoat. And so there was a counter reaction to George Floyd where somehow the powers that be were able to make a significant segment of white society feel as if they were being asked to do too much to become, you know, sort of agents of positive change or to achieve solidarity around anti-racism. And in fact, they were the they were the recipients of racist policies. They were the ones that weren't allowed to come to the head of the line to get COVID-19 shots um, and, and, and affirmative action efforts that were meant to um to uh, make up for, compensate for systemic racism were viewed as being anti-white. And so there was a, a return of racism back to people rather than moving it into the realm of racist ideas that we could all 
find solidarity in encountering. And that that ability that that as you say, the post George Floyd, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, and then a reaction to it, which develops a, a kind of almost a conspiracy theorist, irrational myth of the white white people being replaced in some way. There's a conspiracy out there. And even if it, in its most dramatic form, but but also a sense, as you say, that white working class people had had to find as a reason for the enormous inequality, the, the decline in social mobility in a society where social mobility was highly prized, uh, and and could then turn that turn that tension to some to, to a, almost almost the you know out of out of the closet fi- you know find the find the usual suspects for the for any problem we've got. Well, it'll be it'll be the left or it'll be African Americans. Is it possible? Also, that I mean, I remember studying the American uh, Civil War prior to the American Civil War, and looking at slavery. And most most it, one of the things that came out was most Southern whites didn't own slaves, but they enthusiastically supported slavery for all sorts of reasons. They were afraid of slaves being released. They they had profoundly racist beliefs and so on. But one possible explanation was that while African Americans were seen as at the bottom of the pile, at fault for their own situation, then the poorest white person could never feel themselves to be the bottom. They were were in a sense defined uh, by African Americans. White people found a certain way of defining their own identity against African Americans. Yes, it's uh, uh, indeed, indeed. Um, so as difficult it is, as it may be to actually conceive prior to certain uh, legislation that occurred in the, starting with the late 1700s and into the 1800s, race was not really a factor in one's social status. Um, in fact, um Across, you know, the the emerging nation, uh, as the thirteen colonies became um, a nation, a nation state, there was a sense that w- it was actually one's national origin that was more significant, and so people, in a sense, non-raced, right? And but then slavery or chattel slavery became part of uh, the economic. Strategy, if you will, uh, in a, a nation that was kind of predicated on the idea of uh, economic uh, engine, right? Of, of being an economic engine. The very, in fact, coming to the new world was as much an economic en- enterprise as it was a uh, enterprise of religious freedom, which the Jamestown colony embodied, right? And there was a, there was very much the sense that. There had to be a uh, maximization of the resources in order to fulfill the charter of um, from from uh, the United Kingdom, from from the king, and from the crown, if you will. So this economic motivation justified, you know, the first slaveries that landed, the first uh, slaves that landed on um, in, in Jamestown, um, landed on the shores on the way to Jamestown. And so one wonders uh so one wonders what would have been different if in the story of America there was an there was an ongoing acknowledgement of these twin motivations kind of animating um 
the nation state. Uh, but it, as it became clear that uh, people of African descent, unsurprisingly, would not surrender to uh, to permanent sort of chattel slavery or permanent enslavement. As by, by, by the way, the terms of working as a non as a as a, as a non landowner in the new world required, as you might know, indentured servitude, which was true of whites or people of African descent or, or, or uh, those who are of U- European descent. All were in indentured servitude, but at a particular juncture. And there's actually a, a specific law associated with this in Virginia. There was a differential treatment of whites who has, who violated the terms of indentured servitude and um, blacks who did. And and through this mechanism, uh, blacks were consigned to intergenerational sort of servitude. And that began a cleavage on the basis of race. And this was actually within Virginia law itself. And so these policies accumulated over time that distinguished between the poor whites who were allowed, if nothing else, their freedom compared with blacks who were not given their uh, their their freedom and were were forced into and then removed their their rights were removed even as Christians because of course the it, it was the the moral code was defined by Christianity at the time and and the sense that all human beings were equal in the sight of God and so Christian morality also dictated one's um one's status as a human being and so there had to be a systematic process of removing people of the darker hue that were somatically, uh, you know, of, of the darker phenotype into a category that was not recognized by this, you know, this Judeo-Christian and uh, Abrahamic code. And so this is what was done in the law progressively so that whites remained within the purview of the Judeo-Christian moral status of, of a human being in the eyes of God. But the rights associated with that membership were systematically removed by Virginia law from people of African descent. And so that cleavage over time, you know, grew into not only a Virginia-based set of practices, but state by state allowed poor whites to claim a higher place on the racial hierarchy than poor blacks. And uh, in fact, so many books have come up to to show the effects of this. One of, one of them is um, The Wages of Whiteness. Um, it talks about how in the labor unions themselves were predicated on this racial hierarchy that uh, gave uh, uh, poor whites a sort of racial wage by virtue of their race that was not given to blacks. And so um, it is this it is this practice that has remained in place. Uh, one of the philosophers um, gave the name harem folk ethic to this weird kind of cleavage that has characterized American society that we dare not say its name 
that even though, for example, with the Emancipation Proclamation that ended slavery in 1865, there was this de facto social code remain, you know, has remained firmly in place and has defined our political intercourse more than, if you will, the laws in our constitution that have given these rights to everyone on the basis of their membership in the human race. And do you think that those attitudes, that legacy, manifests itself in 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 subtle ways such as, I was thinking that all Americans, even very liberal Americans who celebrated with great, great happiness the election of Barack Obama, and yet their view of black Americans was that people should, like they have done as white Americans and liberals, pull themselves up and get themselves together and disciplined hard work. And, and that was the answer. And black Americans can then become a sense in which you become more comfortable in yourself as a high achieving, um, d- uh, delightfully uh, able to enjoy your wealth, partly because the feckless and the, the disaffected black American defines you as not being that, as it were, if you see what I mean. Yes, that projection um, onto African-Americans, the worst, the worst qualities, right, that justify the legitimacy of our social contract as it's been really implemented. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange psychology, isn't it, that um, in order for the social order as we know it to be maintained, in a sense, it, uh, the, the white dominant society projects onto the subaltern, if you will, their worst qualities uh, that then um, makes it possible for them in their for the for the majority in their day-to-day lives to continue on as if all is well. That is a, a psychological phenomenon that it's hard to deny. Uh, but at the same time, it is difficult to build the self-awareness of its relevance in an individual's life. And so that is one of the battles of anti-racism is countering this tendency by the way having a long history in our as part of our social fabric you know de Tocqueville when uh, in his great work on the american democracy you know admired that the fact admired our country for the very fact that this national local divide worked in some way to ensure stability but it was predicated on these weirdities of reasoning where uh, people could subcri- subscribe to these high lofty goals, moral goals of equality at the, in the grandest possible way, uh, but uh, at, uh, in a sort of colorblind way. And then at the local level, participate in highly racist uh, local sort of ways of life and and um justify that as a part of their lived experience and their traditions uh that that's that explains for example why there's still fidelity to the confederate flag long after the south has been defeated and so this local national piece is gunner murdoch in his work in the 1940s of the american dilemma is also a classic work of 
trying to reconcile this local national divide and its inability to internalize within the citizen across the nation this obligation to apply the key tenets of our constitution that all men are created uh, equal and are endowed with our uh, by our creator and these and with these inalienable rights and these liberties and and these values that individual citizens um you know struggle to to apply these ideas in their day-to-day life and instead what we have is a kind of detente a kind of happy uh, sort of patrolling of the borders as a society where we live in homogenous pockets for the most part even though the suburbs are becoming more diverse but as a nation geographically we live in these pockets of um of sort of homogene racially homogeneous um, geographic regions that allow us to continue our lives and not have to really weigh in on these issues of racial equity uh but we are being called upon in this current moment to weigh in in a way that is decisive for our nation and in 2020 77 77 plus million people voted for one way of thinking of uh, about our national unity while a very close number over 70 million voted to the contrary so this divide is a beautiful and powerful representation of the state of our of our democracy right now as we try to achieve this all the way down sense of what we believe as a nation ought to be the case about state violence um to a, a minority to the minoritized uh, members of our population as that segment is growing and or these views can't as you have, as you pointed out so well they don't fall neatly along racial lines that is just because one is of african american descent does not mean that one is anti-racist or practices um or does not practice anti-black racism similarly just because one is white does not mean that one necessarily practices practices anti-black racism and that indeed there are forms of anti-white racism that are subtle but very real and so we're asking of our polity to attain a level of literacy of critical literacy that our education system frankly has not necessarily Uh, had the capacity to do and so our civic education has to ramp up in a way that right now as a public policy or as or in terms of our um, you know public uh, institutions and or even our bureaucracy is not yet situated to respond in a way to meet the moment well thank you for that john you've been you've been so wonderfully generous with your time and what with all the technical difficulties we've had we've gone beyond an hour so thank you thank you so much for that thank you a lot to work with and to fix and to make it into something <laughs> and that brings to an end 
another episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week was Professor Sharon Fraser Burgess, Professor of Social Foundations of Education and Multicultural Education at Ball State University in Indiana in the USA. She's also multiply published in papers, articles, and her book, Making Sense of Education, Practices for Change in Difficult Times. If you enjoyed our discussion and you'd like to listen to it again, you'll find it now as a podcast on Spotify and multiple other platforms. Thank you for listening. Listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.